Hello everyone, it's Aidan Lang here, uh, and today I'm here to talk about Così Fan Tutti, our next opera. Così Fan Tutti is always classified as a comedy, but as always with comedy, the old adage that it's the most serious art form was never truer than it is of this piece. It's a piece which delves very deeply into our psyche, into human behaviour, built into it a ideas and topics which are very germane to the lives we live today and the society we, we lead today. This production is uh, a revival of the production which was mounted here back in 2006 by the acclaimed director Dr. Jonathan Miller. Jonathan said that Così Fantotti is not about fidelity, it's about identity and what happens when you put on a disguise. And I think there's an awful lot of truth in that. The four young lovers, that's the uh, the sisters, Fiordaligi and Dorabella, and their fiancés, Guglielmo and Ferranda, four young people start the opera with a confidence about their feelings for each other and where they stand in the world. And then as part of a what is a very cruel experiment instigated by their friend, the older character Don Alfonso, the fidelity of the girls is put to the test. And it's put to the test by the men pretending they have to go off on military service and then coming back almost immediately in disguise, in this case disguised as Albanians. Now disguise is an interesting thing. It's a bit like a masked ball where the code of a masked ball was that you were able to behave in a way that would probably not be so acceptable without your mask. The conceit was, it is not me, it is my character. It is not me, it is my mask who's flirting with somebody. And the same way here, that the boys dress up in outlandish disguises. And certainly in the first half of the opera, I think they, they think they're having a good time. To give an example of this, Guglielma sings a very witty number, which certainly to the 18th century was well understood, where the the Albanians extol their noses and their moustaches. So there was a sort of crude joke going on. And I think the point is that Guglielmo wouldn't dare to make that joke as his real self, but he's able to do it because he's in disguise. In other words, the men have taken on this bet and this sort of outrageous disguise as a matter of fun. And before they know what's happened, they themselves find themselves being sucked in. These persona of the Albanians begins to take them over as well. And so pretty quickly, like a house of cards, the whole solidity of the beginning of the opera begins to fall away. And it is the personas of the boys in disguise, their extrovert sexuality, which ironically is the catalyst for the two girls to begin to change their point of view. Jonathan, I think, is right that the disguise and the license that it allows is the catalyst of the drama. Even Despina, who's complicit in the act, is feeling that the two girls should learn a life lesson. Despina appears in two disguises, as a doctor and as a notary. But then at the end, she's wounded by what's happened to her. I think her guilt is partly through the fact that she's allowed her own disguises to take her over. Her reason has gone. She's been a part of the whole situation falling out of control. Certainly the four lovers, plus Despina, 
do go through a change throughout the opera. You know, the time scale is 24 hours. That's the bet from Alfonso, that the girls will fall within a day, within 24 hours. And at the end of that day, five of the six characters are profoundly different from what they were at the beginning of the opera. Alfonso, I think not. I think Alfonso is a man of experience, and he feels he's seen it all, and he is confident that something will happen um, to these people, that they will be, in his view, wiser human beings. Within this production, what we're going to see is that the two girls gradually change their appearance in terms of costumes to almost subconsciously chime in with the looks given to the boys as they come in disguise. So it's almost um, as if, without realizing it, their choice of attire is designed to attract or to feel at one with the, the new man who seems to have entered their lives. We should feel at the end of the Act 1 finale that with the humour and the knockabout comedy of that scene, we should feel that this experiment has not worked, that the men have been sent packing and they've been so outrageous that they've, they've had a laugh. We start Act 2 and the scene's very different. The scene beginning of Act 2 may be an hour or so later where they've had time to digest the events. And then we see them beginning to change, thinking, well, you know, the men are away. It'll, it'll be for entertainment. It's, it'll just be for a laugh. What else will we do? And they're almost talking themselves into, putting themselves into a position where they're vulnerable. And then pretty swiftly in the duet between Dorabella and Guglielmo, um, we see Dorabella ready to take this encounter to the next phase. And I think this catches Guglielmo out. He's not only surprised that it's the partner of his friend who has made a beeline for him. I, th- I think the boys thought that they would flirt with their own partners. And where it twists is that the two girls choose the other one. They've been attracted by, by someone else, which I think catches the boys unaware. And then you get the whole sort of macho thing of, I've got to fulfill my bet. And yet that's the lamest excuse ever for bad behavior. During the course of the sequence in Act 2, we see all four characters going into areas of their personality and psyche, which they never dreamed existed. And all of them feel guilty about it. I think a very important point around the title of the opera, Così Fan Tutti, must be made in order to clear something about the intention of the piece. And that's this. The title is an abbreviated quotation from a line of Don Basilio in The Marriage of Figaro, where, if you remember in the Act One trio, where it seems that Susanna has been caught in a compromising position with Carabino, and Basilio says, Così fan tutti le belle, all beautiful women are like that. And Mozart wanted this as the title of the opera. But the title which the librettist Lorenzo da Ponte gave it was La Scuola degli Amanti, the school for lovers. And there's a really important difference between a title of the School for Lovers, and one which says all women behave in this way. And that's this, that for Da Ponte, the opera was about all four lovers, that yes, there has to be a 
plot mechanic which puts the, the women's fidelity to the test. But Don Alfonso, for whom you read Da Ponte, knew well that the boys were being put to the test as well. Unfortunately, Da Ponte lost out in the argument. We know he resisted Mozart's desire to give it the musical witty title and, and lost. And I think that's a great shame because I think the title which Mozart chose, you could say, is more emblematic of a, an 18th century view of the nature of the two sexes. But I think had the opera been called The School for Lovers, it would be perceived very differently. Well, undoubtedly, there is a sort of misogynistic side to the action, or certainly to the Alfonso's plot. I mean, one can't deny that. But actually, the overarching intention of the piece, from de Ponte's part, was to show a difference of youth and experience. That really, it is about all four of these young people who start from a position of confidence finding themselves changed and having learned a lesson. What makes this piece such an extraordinary work is the range of emotions which Mozart describes in the music, the subtlety and nuance of it, the fact that the characters are not two-dimensional, that even in moments which seem quite straightforward, there is complexity. It's a complex plot in terms of character development. And the miracle of Mozart's music in this opera is the way he captures that range of often conflicting emotions, sometimes in in the same moment. Human beings are not black and white. They are infinitely varied. And I think what he manages to do here is suggest that at every moment these characters' lives are tinged with doubt, which underpins certainty. As the four lovers progress from a state of assurance to one of complete confusion, Mozart depicts that, but always with sympathy for their suffering. There's a humanity to his music which shines through. He seems in this opera to me to to capture the strengths, the weaknesses, the conflicting emotions which we as human beings go through on, on a daily basis. So I think what's really interesting and also difficult about this opera is this. Were we in the 18th century, we would perceive this opera in one way. We would see the resolution which comes at the end when Alfonso essentially says, look, you've been through this experience, it was part of a learning curve, kiss and make up, and you'll be better people for it, and full stop. And I think to an 18th century sensibility, that's fine. We know the 19th century struggled with this opera immensely. It was, it was very seldom performed. They felt it immoral. It completely countered the notion of the perfect union of marriage, which was central to 19th century certainly respectable thought, to even suggest that a woman would have thoughts for another man just, just freaked them out. So they, basically, they either rewrote the piece in ridiculous manners or they simply didn't perform it. You can pinpoint the revival of Cosi Vantotti to the fact it was programmed in the initial season of the by now famous Glyndebourne Festival in 1934. It was those performances and the fame which very quickly Glyndebourne gained which very much helped to put Cosifantotti back on the map. And it's never looked back. But what happens now is we question that 
18th century worldview in the light of contemporary thought. We look at these events in a very different way. We feel the suffering of the characters, I think, a lot a lot more. We question the right of Alfonso to play that game. We question uh, whether the, the two young men should even have gone along with the bet. You know, how callous are they? And we have a very, very different view of the piece. And one of the great beauties of this work is how it ends is open. Some productions end with characters going back to their original partners. Others say the intensity of Act Two and the interactions with the other partner are so strong that they couldn't possibly go back to their uh, original partners and they go off with the new pairing and others sort of break up the um, production entirely. Indeed, Paul Daniel, our maestro, told me of a production, which I saw in London, but I only saw it once, so I didn't know what was happening. But apparently, all the singers had free license to end each individual performance the way they felt it needed to end on the basis of that evening's show. So every time they did it, it ended differently. I, of course, only saw it once, so I didn't quite realize this is what was going on. But Paul said in throughout the run, he, he is a conductor, didn't know how it was going to end. That helps keep what would otherwise be quite a problematic piece today, it keeps it fresh and alive because there is no prescribed outcome. I think one of the strengths of this particular production was Jonathan Miller's insistence that it was played in modern dress. This production, in fact, originated in the 1990s at Covent Garden where the designer was Giorgio Armani. And when the production got revived a couple of years later, Armani, who had previously provided creations which were of the year of its creation, said, well, that, that was last year. You have to have new creations this year. This gave Jonathan Miller the idea that whenever the production was remounted, and it's been seen in Florence, it's been seen in D.C., as well as here in Seattle, it should have costumes which are not only totally contemporary, but also pertinent to the ethos of a city in which they're being presented. In other words, it, were we doing it in Italy, we'd see different costumes to Seattle. I think this is a really smart idea uh, in order to keep this piece which has so changed throughout its performance history, to keep it alive. Two years ago, I did, myself, I directed the production of Le Notte di Figaro, where we very consciously costumed the piece in a kind of modern riff on 18th century costumes. And I did that because the plot itself dictates a social setting. Here, yes, the piece has an 18th century sensibility baked in, but it's that very sensibility which is up for grabs and up for questioning. And therefore, in order to make us today view the piece with a proper and detached viewpoint, it's important to know who these pe these characters are in the light of contemporary living rather than filtered through an 18th century eye. What, of course, is, is interesting about this opera also is that it is, in a kind of way, a battle of the sexes. And, and one way of looking at it, to start with, is to look at the relationship between Alfonso and Despina. It's clear that they've known each other and have sparred off each other 
for some time. Now, this production takes a slightly different reading in terms of the setting and where this opera takes place, but in the original text, the two girls are from Ferrara and they've come to Naples to have a holiday. First question, why have they got no chaperone? Who are these two sisters? There's no mother in sight. Are they orphans? And Despina comes with the house. She's not their servant from Naples. She's local. And so clearly she and Alfonso know each other and they play off each other, and which is why I think Despina is kind of happy to go along. She's a bit fed up of these girls, you know, have rented the villa. But there's a difference. Alfonso, you know, he uses her. He manipulates Despina. And there's something rather cruel about his behavior to her, even though their relationship seems to be based on banter. And we see in that funny little number when we move to the garden where Alfonso and Despina both do a courtship to demonstrate how to court the opposite sex. So the imbalance is there. In It seems that the two, Despina and Alfonso, are equal partners, but there's a clear imbalance. The man is controlling the woman there. With the lovers, what's interesting is the way musically, throughout much of the first half and bits of the second half, the two sisters and the two men sing in harmony with each other. The, the sisters are often a third apart, the men are often a sixth apart. It's as if they're kind of identical. They become woman or man. It becomes clear musically, as well as from a character point of view, that both the two sisters are different people and also the two men are different people. And that's, again, part of the genius of this piece, is that something which seems very neat and pat in its opening 40 minutes begins to take on complexity. As Act 1 moves on, we begin to see the difference. The first thing is compare Comiscoli, if you're Ligi's aria, with Donabella's first aria. Both are written in a, a quasi-opera seria fashion. But Comiscoli is for real. It has an accompanied recitative, which indicates a character of importance, and then she's absolutely sincere in her language and her intent. Dorabella's artist, Mani Implicabile, it's a parody of opera seria music. They come storming in with the men having just gone up. She says, close the windows, I need darkness. And the text of the aria is like a, a Greek tragedy talking about, I will be hounded by the furies. It's extreme behavior. And I, that's the first indicator that there's actually a difference between Dorabella and Fiola di Ligi. This is a hysterical reaction of someone who's probably going to fall whereas Fiordaligi's use of operasarian music is sincere. It's a subtle point, but an important point, and it's no surprise that it's actually Dorabella who has a, if you like, a more grown-up view in Act 2, but once she's been off with Guglielmo, when she comes back for Eomori and Ladroncello, loves a, a naughty little devil, she's quite at home with whatever happened when she went off with him. Whereas for Fiordaligi, the fall, if you like, is a much more painful experience. Likewise with two men. As soldiers, they sing dutifully together. After Comiscoli, both men have an aria, and Guglielmo's is funny. This is the one where he's extolling the masculine virtues, and he's playing around and having a laugh. Left alone, Ferrando is much more reflective we see a deeper soul there. Likewise, once Guglielmo returns from his encounter with Dorabella, he has a long recitative in which to 
try and find his way around with it and laugh it off. And his recourse is to turn to every woman in the audience and basically say it's your fault when he is the one who's instigated it, which is a very immature approach, whereas Fernando, he's deeply hurt by what's happened, and he's hurt by his friends as well. Certainly, Jonathan Miller's view is he goes into the seduction of Fiordaligi partly out of revenge on Guglielmo, his friend, who has betrayed him. One of the features of this production is we have many people making their debut and one or two welcome returnees. So on our podium, we have Paul Daniel. Paul was the music director of Opera North in Leeds and then for many years the music director of English National Opera. And he is also the currently the music director of the opera in Bordeaux. He's making his Seattle Opera debut, but is no stranger to this piece, having conducted it many times. We've given the task of reviving Jonathan Miller's production to Harry Fair. Harry is a young director in his own right, and for someone of tender years, has got a number of very impressive productions under his belt, including a new production of The Flying Dutchman at Scottish Opera, which was done to great acclaim a couple of years ago, as, as well as production of Orlando at Welsh National Opera. And he's also an experienced hand with this particular production, having worked with Jonathan on, I believe, three times in mounting it. This production, back in 2006, had uh, new costumes, as I said before, uh, crafted especially for Seattle by Cynthia Savage. And Cynthia has come back to make yet more new costumes for 2018 Seattle. Cynthia has a long association with Seattle Opera. She was the costume shop manager way back in, as far back as 1984, and has managed countless of our productions, including you know, the mammoth costume task for War and Peace, and as I say, was the designer for this production in 2006. Among the cast, again, a lot of people making their debut, and I, I guess the best place to start is that we are featuring two stellar sisters as the two sisters. Marina and Ginger Costa-Jackson are playing uh, Fiorligi and Doranabella, re respectively, and both are amazing singers, but they tell us they've never actually sung together before on stage. So uh, as well as making their Seattle Opera debut, they're making their family debut as well in this production. Our other two sisters are the Finnish singer Mariuka Teppanen, who is making her, I believe, North American debut, as well as Seattle Opera debut as Fiordaligi. And a welcome back to Hannah Hip who, of course, we saw as Isolier last year, and she's going to hang on for a bit and play Beatrice in Beatrice and Benedict as well. So it's great to have Hannah back. For the boys, it's a welcome back for Craig Verm as Guglielmo, alongside a debut for a wonderful American singer, Michael Adams. And as our two tenors, we have another Finnish singer, Thomas Katayala, again making his American and Seattle opera debut in the role of Fernando, and another debut for Benjamin Bliss. Ben has actually moved to Seattle, so although his career is taking him everywhere, it's great to know that he's on our doorstep occasionally, and we're delighted to feature him as Fernando as well. Don Alfonso, we've single-cast Alfonso, and Kevin Burdett, who tells me he hasn't been here for about 10 years. But Kevin is one of those marvellous singing, acting bass baritones. He's a, an absolute tour de force. I saw him recently in, in Santa Fe in The Golden Cockerel, where he was absolutely magnificent. He's a terrific singing actor, and uh, we're delighted to welcome him back. And he, too, is staying on to play Somarone in Beatrice and Benedict, 
And the third of our cast who's staying on is Lara Tatalescu. Lara, you will remember, played Susanna in The Marriage of Figaro a couple of years ago. And great to have her back. And she is staying on to play Hero in Beatrice Menedit as well. One way we wanted to bring a level of familiarity to a group of new singers to you, our audiences, was to bring some singers back immediately and take advantage of the fact that we could offer members of cast uh, two adjacent contracts and keep them in town. So consequently, four of the Kazifan Tutti cast are actually featuring Beatrice, as well as Lara, Kevin and Hannah. Uh, Craig Verm is also playing Claudio. And in this way, I think we can build a repertoire, of an ensemble, if you like, of new singers for you to enjoy and to see their work on more than one occasion. So by way of signing off, I'm greatly looking forward to this great masterpiece and I'm very proud that we're presenting it on our stage. It's a piece which, just as we saw earlier, has changed throughout its performance history, will continue to do so. I'm looking forward, especially, I think, to our talkbacks, to, to hear from you what you feel about the piece, what you feel about the way it's presented, and what resonance it's had for you.